the biggest money move I made was when I left change.org. So I decided to leave that company under some just pretty bad conditions. They recently had a round of layoffs. It was just chaos at the high level. And I needed some space. I needed some time. I don't know if I ever told you the story, the details of, of all of us, but I just needed to take a break. And so I said, I'm going on PTO for a week. I need to figure this out. And the next day I went to log in just to check stuff. And I had been locked out of all systems. And they had put me on what they call disability leave for mental health. And I said, hmm, this is really interesting. I didn't know you could put people on leave, number one. And number two, do you want a lawsuit? Because what is this? Welcome to Smart Career and Money Moves, a podcast for professionals seeking fulfillment and purpose in their careers. Each week, we will sit down with experts and trailblazers to discuss the ups and downs of finding and following your passions, whether it's through climbing the corporate ladder, starting a business, or launching a side hustle. So let's get into the show. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Smart Career and Money Moves podcast. Today, I have Miss Ansa Edom. She is simply amazing. First of all, I am in awe of all the things that she has accomplished in her career. And actually a fun fact, when I was thinking about launching my career coaching business, she was one of the first people I went to for marketing advice. <laughs> so not only is she a marketing expert, she was the first black person in the C-suite as an executive at change.org. She's an award-winning storyteller and writer. She has built a TikTok community of 16,000 followers who love her relationship and dating stories. Welcome to the show, Miss Ansa. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Thank you for those kind words. I feel like I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> love that. Everyone always feels so great after their intro. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You know, when I was starting a podcast, I just went through like, let me just go through my LinkedIn. Let me just go through people I actually know to see who would be great. And I was like, I know some dope people, right? Like these are people that I just know. Yeah, isn't that a great feeling? Yeah, it's awesome. So there's a lot to unpack, all those things that you've accomplished. But I really want to help people walk through the journey because, you know, you don't just wake up and become all of those things and accomplish all those things. Like there's always some very interesting backstory. So... I really want to start with you kind of like at the beginning because you studied media and communications. And so how did you pick your lane? How did you wind up in marketing? Like, help me understand yeah. that. Yeah. So I always wanted to be in advertising. So starting from when I was a kid, maybe this is pre-Mad Men days, before the show, before it was cool to be in advertising, I didn't really know what advertising was, but I knew that the people who made the decisions and commercials were usually called executives. And so I made a decision that that's what I wanted to be. And when I got to college, it was hard to find an advertising undergrad. It didn't really exist at the time and it barely exists now. So I chose marketing because at the time of my mind, I was like, oh, these are basically the same. They're not, but <laughs> they're basically the same. And I was in marketing and undergrad for a semester before I came home with terrible grades and decided to change my major and find a better major because I could not do it, only to end up in grad school in the same classes and hating it. 
but there was somebody told me that there was a school of media arts and design. I went to James Madison University in Virginia. And one of the kind of sub categories of that school was corporate communications and advertising. And you have to test into this program. So my halfway through my freshman year, I tested into this program. I got in and I just was on the corporate communications and advertising path ever since then. And I spent every summer interning and advertising at the Washington Post. I took every kind of job I could on campus to help me be better at that. I even did telemarketing on the side and I would walk, it was about two miles and I would walk to my job at telemarketing off campus. So I just kind of said, I'll do whatever I need to do to become this thing. It looks interesting. There's a sociology to it. There's this how do you decide what color t-shirt someone's wearing in an ad? That really kind of piqued my interest, even as a kid. Okay. So do you think you became that or did, what else happened? Cause you want to become this executive. Do you think you got it or did you change your mind? It's funny because I did eventually get it and I immediately changed my mind. I said, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I don't want to be the person who makes all the decisions. I don't want the responsibility I think I've found my happy medium where I have a lot of power and very little responsibility <laughs> in my current job. And so over throughout the journey, I kind of learned that this level I was striving for, those people don't have work-life balance. Mm. They might make a lot of money, but they don't have time to spend it. And I love spending money and I like traveling and I like the freedom that comes with it. So I had to really work my way up because nobody becomes a marketing executive from day one, which slapped me in the face as this entitled undergrad. <laughs> and so I was kind of hopping from job to job looking for this next level of experience. And when I finally got there 10 years later, I kind of just looked around and said, this isn't really all it's cracked up to be. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm making a lot of money, but it's a lot of pressure and it's not as fun as I imagined it to be. And I wanted more fun. Over the course of 10 years, how much hopping around did you have to do to get there? Quite a bit. So I think the longest I stayed at one company was three years. That was at change.org. Every other place I was there for anywhere between 18 months was the second longest to three months. I was at a kind of a, um, like a Deloitte style consultancy an Accenture style okay. consultancy as a sapient. And after three months of that, I was having panic attacks in the bathroom. And it was like, nope, actually, no, thank you. <laughs> and it was pretty close to my first six-figure job. And so there, I felt a lot of pressure because I finally made it. I was making some money and I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't do it. And I, I, the walls kind of caved in. And I said, if this is what it feels like to be making this much money, then I need to reevaluate. And this was before change.org. Yes. Change.org is the most recent place I was okay. at. And I left there. Uh, in 2021, and I just started a new job. I took some time, I consulted, and I just started a new job where I'm pretty at peace. <laughs> I like, okay. learned a lot about myself and I found the balance and I've been there for about. I'm a fan, you said a couple things I wanna to touch on there, but I'm a fan of job hopping. How do you think that affected your ability to level up so quickly? I think it works really well because first of all, I focus on the title. So before I left change, it was really important to me to get that next level title. I needed a director level title because if I spent three years at this company and I didn't leave with a director level title, how can I get a director level title at the next job? 
So a lot of the moves I was making on paper looked like lateral, but they weren't. My strategy was that I'm working at a company. I prove my worth. I do a, the job for a year, a year and a half. And then I look around and I say, okay, the next level up says they have to do these things. And I've already been doing that. So I'm just going to call myself a director and I'm mm. seeking director level jobs because I'm seeking a growth opportunity from my last job. And I would start just saying that, just speaking it into existence. And then I get the next level job and my salary would double from place to place. And I would get the next level job and I would say, okay, I've been here for about six months. I think I could do this. I don't like it here. <laughs> and when I look for another job, it's going to have a similar title, but maybe it's a half step up. And I say, you know, at my last job, I managed all of this. And you're looking for someone to only manage this. I know I can do that. And so I just kind of, I started acting like I could do the job because I had already done it. And in this last job, I know I wanted a director level job. So I changed my LinkedIn to say I was a marketing director. Who was going to stop me? <laughs> I had done the marketing director work. I had that title. They don't even need to know how for however briefly. But, you know, I, I had been working in marketing for a decade. And a lot of marketing directors don't even have that experience. So I started to look at myself and say, okay, I fit the qualifications. And maybe I don't have all the same job titles, but I am a marketing director. And it worked. And I, I had actually I had two jobs competing for me. And I picked the one with the higher salary. That is so dope. I always tell my clients or people who want to work with me, they're so afraid of doing what you did. They're afraid to say what they've actually been doing as a title or responsibility. There's no way they're going to put something that, you know, a title that somebody didn't give them as some organization. So like, where did you find that? Where did you get that idea that like, this profile is mine and I'm going to tell the story the way I want to? Probably from my mom. <laughs> okay. Just, I feel like there was maybe a story she told me that at some point, you're, if you're doing your boss's job and you leave, you can tell people that that's the job that you had. If I was doing that work, then I was, no one can take that away from me, that that's the job I was doing. And yeah. so I just started saying it. So for example, one thing I do want to point out though, before I move on, is that it was rare, extremely rare that I left a job without another job to go to. So mm -hmm. you have to be plotting and be careful. Um, there were times where I had, you know, maybe a week or two between, but it was rare and pretty strategic that I always had another job lined up. So I was pretty confident in leaving most of the time. But yeah, I think I, I just got that confidence because I feel like my mom told me a story once about that, but it really stuck with me that if I was doing the work, then I was doing the work. So if they're looking for someone who had a title of marketing director and my title was marketing manager, but I was doing the work that's listed here. Then I was a marketing director. Yeah, because the it's kind of like game theory, right? It's like they're looking for somebody with that specific title in hopes that that translates into the experience that you've had. But we all know that like every company, they can call you whatever they want to call you. Yeah, <laughs> and they come up with crazy titles. I've worked places with chief fun officer, you know, chief people officer at one company could be head of HR somewhere else, you know, marketing director, manager and coordinator in marketing. It can be a pretty, it's pretty linear, but there were roles that I had at change, for example, that I promise you don't exist anywhere else because they made it up mm. on the spot. <laughs> and so I had to really, that was the toughest transition actually, because I had to list out the skills I was using and explain to myself, how does this transfer into the career that I want? And then I use that. So instead of saying I was the VP of staff board, which was my title, which means nothing, I had to say I was executive comms person, or I was like 
I was the glue between the executive staff and management staff. I had to really kind of speak in larger language. So when people saw me, they stopped seeing that title and they started hearing, oh, what, she was on the executive team? Okay, that's all I need to hear. I might need to call you in as a guest speaker (laughs) for my coaching program. I mean, (laughs) basically the backbone of what I do and what I help people do through my coaching is I use the tenets of marketing because somewhere along the lines, I realized that like, The same way that, you know, Apple is selling us on the iPhone or Chick-fil-A is selling us that they have the best chicken sandwich. We can't live without it. Like we can be doing that for ourselves in our career. So like, how do you feel like you've used your expertise in marketing and branding? How have you used that for your professional career growth? That's a great question. So for a little while between jobs, I was teaching self um, or personal branding workshops and I would go up to people at networking events and I would say, oh, what do you do? I'm in DC. This is a typical question here, right? And when people said, I would say, you should be able to answer that a lot faster. And here's my card. (laughs) Because you should be able to say, if somebody says, oh, my name is Ansa, what do I do? My name is Ansa. I'm a marketing director in the tech world and social justice or something like that. And that's a pretty succinct, here's what I do. Here's the industry I'm in. Here's the level I'm at. So people can get that pretty quickly. And I started just saying it to myself. I kind of had mapped out what industries I wanted to be in. I did like social justice that changed. So I wanted to stay there. Tech is pretty stable-ish. I mean, it's a bad time right now for most people in tech. But generally, you know, if, if you're not at Google, you're at Microsoft. So you can kind of bounce around, maybe figure it out. And of course, I wanted to stay in marketing. So I just started saying that. My personal brand is, oh, I'm a marketing director in, in social justice tech. And I generalized all of my experience into that one sentence, and it became a mantra and a statement. So even if I didn't have a job, nobody had to know that, <laughs> number one. But number two, the people said, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, I'm a marketing director in social justice tech. So I would ask people, what is your sentence? When you're, you know, like Jerry, what's, what's your sentence? I am a career coach. I help STEM professionals pivot into new careers and elevate into new roles. There you go. That's the short and sweet version. Exactly. So I, I, that really helped me out. I forgot where I learned that, but I mean, I learned it in marketing, but it was my sales pitch. And that's, you're constantly selling yourself. I love myself a lot and I think I've accomplished a lot of things, but it took me a long time, honestly, to sit down. My resume was like two pages long, which is too long. And so I really had to sit down and list out what is relevant, important, what was an accomplishment. And that exercise alone made me feel really confident in my career ability. You touched on a very good point. Selling. We're always selling. Most people are scared to sell. What do you say to someone who feels like they haven't accomplished anything, right? How do you sell when like, I don't know if what I've done is valuable? Oh, I identify with this a lot. And I think most people might. The first thing that comes to my mind is if you've been able to keep a job, (laughs) then you're valuable. Somebody has not fired you for not doing a bad job. You're valuable. So if you can say you've worked somewhere for two years, three years, five years, you're valuable. Everything you've done has been an accomplishment that has led to revenue or success in your company. So it doesn't have to be in the the vein of I increased sales by 14% in Q2. 
It could be I devised an organization system that allowed us to be more effective as a sales team. And that, that's the, there could be qualitative achievements. So I would ask people, this is, which is what I did, is that I listed out the qualitative achievements. What is everything that I've done that was big to me? What are the projects I worked on? And then maybe I backtracked and said, okay, I can ask some people to help me with the metrics. Like what was our web traffic before and after? What was like, that's the type of stuff I went and asked people for. But it's easy, I think, for people to list out, okay, well, what did I do? And then if you look at it, it's a long list of things that I'm sure everyone you've done at work. So maybe take, cherry pick those and say, what would I, if I were the CEO and I was looking at this list, what are the biggest things that I'd be like, oh yeah, that was really useful. And there's something on your list that, that is useful. That's a great exercise. When did you, like, walk me through or help me visualize the point at which you felt most successful? Like, when did you feel like, I'm good at this marketing thing? I got it. Like, take me to that point. You're asking the tough question. Ah, Emma! <laughs> it's... <laughs> because, okay, I'm going to give an example of when I was at Change. So Change.org doesn't have a marketing organization. There's no marketing team, which is very bizarre for a big tech company, but it's not that big. It's about 200 people worldwide. So it's surprisingly small. And when I joined, I noticed that they didn't have this capacity. So I just kind of made a big fuss about it. I wouldn't shut up. I just kept saying, hey, you need someone to do this, and I'm someone. You need someone to do this, and I'm someone. So I created a marketing plan for all of Change.org. US, UK, and Australia is one group. And then we've got Asia, Latin America, and Europe is another group. And so I created marketing plans and communications that integrated all of those country communications teams together. And I looked at it, and I was like, there's nobody asking me to do this. I just did it. And then I pitched it to my boss, and I said, hey, I think our social media, I started small. I think our social media would go much more, would be much more effective if we actually had coordinated efforts. So here's a suggested integrated plan. She didn't really care. So I just happened to be talking to her boss. And I said, you know what's crazy? We don't have an integrated marketing campaign. And she said, yeah, it'd be really great if we could get someone to do that. And I said, oh, how interesting. And I emailed her the plan that I made. And she said, wow, this is really great. But then she didn't do anything. So I just kept pushing it until finally our chief operating officer, um, by this point, I had so many different titles at this company. I was managing U.S. social media and email. I said, you know, I just think I should just do this for my job. <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> and I think that that was a piece for me of like, if you just do it, who's going to stop you? Who's gonna, like, it, I felt so powerful. And it, it did help, I think, that I was, it's rare that there are Black people in marketing, especially um, Black women. And marketing and communications is a white women, white women kind of led space. And mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of Black women in tech in general. So yeah. I think it helped that I was kind of like using that to my advantage. Like, oh, you have no one? And you just want to hire some other white person to do this? How interesting when I'm sitting here with the skills. And you say this is a social justice organization. Hmm, interesting. So I kind of like guilted them and like twisted a little bit and just forced my way into it. I really did. That's the truth. Everyone needs an answer, okay? Like just the, your perspective on, you know, I'm not going to wait for them to like roll out the red carpet and give me some opportunity. I mean, that, you know, was totally amazing that you 
found an opportunity. And I think that's what people aren't doing, right? They're sitting back, they're waiting for, you know, this list of responsibilities and like waiting on their manager to come to them with this cool project. It's like, no, create the cool project. Yeah, create the cool project. I mean, I have kind of made it my mission to be an advocate for myself and my colleagues, really. So when I saw colleagues who were doing work that didn't really fit their job description, I said, you know, you said you wanted more video. I noticed that Sria does video and we hired her to do video and she's not doing video. (laughs) And that's how I ended up in the C-suite, honestly, is because they created this position of basically a staff advocate to executives. And then they decided it was going to be an executive position. But at that point, I'd made so much noise that changed that I was voted to be on the staff board. Then I was voted to be the chair of the staff board. Then they decided to create this new position and make the chair that position. And I was like, within, I think, within 18 months, that change, I was on the C-suite. So it all happened so quickly. And it was because I just wouldn't shut up. I just was like, hey, I'm not being utilized effectively. And I don't want to leave because I see goodness here. So here's what I suggest. Is this feasible? And I remember at one point, my job was eliminated. My email job was just eliminated. And I found out live in front of the whole team in New York. And I sat on the train all the way up there. And I begged and pleaded, give me an opportunity to create a new role for myself. Because they didn't lay me off. They just said, we'll find something for you. Okay. No, I'm not going to put this in somebody else's hands. So I spent the whole train ride home typing up three separate scenarios. I could have this job with this, these rules, excuse me, with this role and report to this team. Or I could have this job or I could have this job. And here's how it impacts the business. And I created this big spreadsheet. It didn't really get me anywhere, but it was a good exercise for me. To say, like, if you're going to lay me off, just lay me off. But you're not about to just have me doing whatever. Because <laughs> here are all the things that I could be doing. And in the end, um, they made me associate director of brand marketing for change.org. And they said, what title do you want? I said, I want to be a brand marketing director. And they said, you're, you're too junior. And we got in this back and forth. I said, by whose account? <laughs> you don't even know how old I am or how long I've been around. But so we went back and forth. And they... They made it associate director. And then a a few months later, I said, you know what? This is more of a director level job. (laughs) And I said, I'm in all these meetings and I'm the most junior person here. This doesn't make very much sense to me. So they changed it. So not everyone's going to be in that kind of amenable of a situation. But I always felt like I was a whiny, entitled person who's just constantly wanting the next level up. And eventually, I just started saying, you know, It's not that I want that level. It's that I don't ever want to be in a position where I don't want my boss's job or I don't look up to my boss. If there's no one above me who I think I can learn from or who I respect, it's time to go because this isn't going to be a growth opportunity for me, a positive one. So that was a lot, but I hope that answers your question. It was all very good. I mean, you just dropped a gem (laughs) about, you know, looking up you know, is there anything at this organization or in this career for me? I mean, that's an exercise that we all kind of have to go through. And I I usually looked up to my bosses and said, I don't want your job, but you're right. (laughs) There was probably someone two or three levels above that I was like, yeah, I could do that. But you talked about finally reaching the C-suite, the pressure, the work-life balance, um, because I think a lot of people you know, like you earlier in their career, think I want to get to the top 
of the food chain, but you've been there. So kind of walk people through like what happened? What was the change of heart? So I lasted about six months. And first of all, I learned that not every company is a good company to be in a C-suite at, right? It's uh, this dream that I'd had for myself forever. Didn't wasn't really real. I mean, I was a kid or I was in high school, you know, when I had this imagination that this is going to be this grand thing. And then I get there and some executive teams are really dysfunctional. Changes executive team was really dysfunctional. And I had read the five dysfunctions of a team, of course. I had, um, you know, been managed by some of them. And I'm a very strategic person. It's like my top like skill on skill finder or whatever it is. I'm like strategy is my jam. And at that level, there wasn't a lot of strategy happening. It was still in the weeds with this executive team. And so I was just overwhelmed by that kind of like banality of it all. (laughs) It was tedious. It was, you know, arguments over whose team is going to get funding, which is normal at that level. But there wasn't a lot of planning and process, which is to me fun, which is like, okay, where where are we in the market? What's happening here? It, It wasn't that. So I think this was maybe the wrong organization <laughs> to get to the C-suite in because I got there and I was like, this is it. I don't want any of this. Whereas now I report to the chief marketing officer and the, and the chief of staff for the chief marketing officer at Bonterra Tech. And that's much more like she's deep in the weeds and I'm the one who gets to tell her, no, you don't need to hear any of this. Like you need to be way up here. I'm the one reminding her, like, why are you in this meeting? You no. Know. <laughs> like this is this is like we're way too low level for we need to get up here like that's the type of conversation that I'm having every day is my I mean my title is director of marketing strategy so it's very much high level how were all the pieces moving and there are there are tons of products we're moving there's a sales team that needs to be organized there's a marketing team that needs to be organized and at this level I'm doing a lot more strategy than I was at the higher level And yes, the pay is different, but I calculated that too. I calculated how much money I needed to make to live the life I want to live. And I started looking for jobs that were around that salary instead of how, what's the most amount of money I can make? Because those are two different dollar signs. (laughs) Yeah. And I think once you get there, right, once you have doubled your salary multiple times, it becomes less and less about the money. And then it's like, yeah, what do I actually need? (laughs) <laughs> like what do I yeah, actually literally, literally. <laughs> like what what do I you know I'm grateful because the salary I was making a change allowed me to pay off a lot of things I bought a house I was able to you know travel and, and do all those things but now I'm just like is it worth it no not really I, I, th- I think it's I'm this way in other parts of my life with dating included it's kind of a been there done that <laughs> like I have achieved it I'm done So my next question was going to be, do you think you're still climbing the ladder or where are you on the ladder? No, I'm not climbing this ladder anymore. I'm very close to the executives, but I'm a director level and my, so I have two bosses. One is the VP of revenue and the other is the chief marketing officer. And both of them are constantly in meetings that last like all day. Or they're suddenly having to fly to Atlanta or they have a Thursday meeting that's every Thursday from nine to five. It's ridiculous. And all I could think to myself is I don't want to be in those meetings. I want to make sure those meetings are effective and helpful and useful. They're not. 
So without me having to attend meetings that aren't useful or anything, I get to be part of the higher level conversations. All of this to say is that I don't envy them. Like I don't want, I don't want their life. <laughs> I don't, they work weekends. They complain about staying up late on Sunday nights. And I, I, in my first meeting where my boss said that, I said to her, is it, is it the expectation that I would work weekends as well? Because I won't. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Like, I, I just do this because it needs to be done. And I work well on weekends. I said, okay, because I won't. So I've been able to set better boundaries for myself, for sure. Do you think it's going to get harder and harder for companies to actually find talented people to move up in leadership? Because it's kind of like the government, right? The government needs really, really talented people, but the people who could probably actually make a change and actually get some things done, they don't feel like doing that job is the best use of their time. And I'm wondering if companies are going to see the same thing with leadership. It's like, you know, people like you and probably, you know, me, it's like the people who can actually move the needle and help some things get done in your organization People are over it. And maybe it's a, you know, a side effect of COVID. It's like nobody's willing to put in the 30-year grind anymore. What do you think? No, 30. <laughs> I mean, you oh know. Oh my gosh. I, my, my mom just retired and she was there for almost 30 years. And I can't even imagine. I get anxiety thinking about doing anything for six months. I can't sign a gym membership or anything. I, I, I mean, I have one, but do I go? I don't I absolutely think that what my um, chief revenue officer calls servant leadership is what is going to be kind of the next, it's the big thing that companies are going to have to get on board with. So he, he'll sometimes kind of delineate and say, we are leaders. So here's what we need to be doing. And then he'll also say, we are leaders. So we need to be doing more, get, be managing down more, or we need to be managing up more. But the idea is that it's not just I'm a C-suite person and there are all these minions beneath me. That's not how he thinks about things. And I've only been there for three months and I immediately liked him the first you know, couple of meetings. And I hadn't heard anyone I worked for ever say something like servant leadership before. A lot of people we know, right, are working from home. I was turning jobs down where I was like, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to come in and work temporarily um, in the office. I'm not doing any of that. I want fully 100% remote. There's no expectation that I would come into an office. And people are saying, you're turning down good jobs. You're, you know, you're doing all this. It's not a good job if it doesn't fit my criteria, right? I feel that the same way going back, even back to dating. It's like, you know, I, I don't want children. And people will say, um, what if you meet a man who wants children? And he's super great. And I said, well, he can't be that great if we're incompatible in that way. <laughs> he might be a great person, but he's not great for me, right? So. I feel that way about jobs is that I had the privilege of being able to be really picky about what job I took because not everyone is, is, is able to do that, but I refused to settle. And they said, Oh, you know, we have an office in DC. I go, no, I'm not going. <laughs> I went a couple of times. It's a beautiful office, not for me. And more leadership is going to have to um, kind of recognize that this management by walking around is a thing of the past. Where are you walking to? Ooh. Where, right? <laughs> Where are you walking? There's, there's no one around. You just hit the nail on the head because I've been having this conversation with so many people and that is exactly what it is. The leaders don't feel important. They don't feel, they don't feel important anymore. Yeah, because they don't have anywhere to walk to. And no one, you know, in their cubicle, they're like, oh, there's, there's so-and-so. No, there's no one. 
Yeah, it's like and hop, it's, hop, and hop on this why, Zoom. Like, hop on exactly, this Zoom like everybody like else. This, like <laughs> the servant leadership is that like exactly it kind of brings us all back down to like what is our mission as an organization? I don't want to be an executive so I can boss people around. I genuinely believe that I would like the responsibility at that level. And I like the strategy at that level. But I didn't want to be the boss. I wanted to be an executive. And there's a difference. And there are some people who want to become leaders so that they can be the boss. And there are other people who want to become leaders so that they can make an impact and make a change. And the people who want to become the boss, they're the ones who are most impacted by this pandemic and people working remotely. The people who want to lead, you can still lead from anywhere. And I do, you know, from anywhere. But I think that's the biggest lesson coming out of the pandemic for me about my career is this realization that I don't want to be the boss. I don't have to be the boss to feel successful because I'm, I'm on the Zoom with everyone else, and yet I'm still feeling important and good about the work that I do. I love that. And actually, you know, servant leadership, uh, I learned about it in my first leadership role. And that's my philosophy as well, that I, kind of, I work for them. My, my job was to make sure they were successful, because if you can't get your direct reports to get on board with the mission, to get things done, like, none of us are going anywhere, right? You're, you're going to be right. leading nobody. So yeah, that was how I moved around too. But I want you to finish this sentence. My smartest career money move was? It's between, okay, I have two. Okay. Can I do two? Because one is really big. And the other one is one that I think just like everyone should remember. I never tell anyone what my, if they ask what my current salary is, I lie <laughs> or I don't tell them. You don't need to know. You're not going to anchor this conversation. and Forget what, I, what those people were paying me. They're not here. <laughs> this is between you and me. <laughs> so I always do a lot of salary research. And so in conversations, when they say, like, what are you looking for? I give them a, like a little bit above my lowest salary request, right? So I try to anchor the conversation as early as possible as far as negotiations go. The biggest money move I made was when I left change.org. So... I decided to leave that company under some uh, just pretty bad conditions. They recently had a round of layoffs. It was just chaos at the high level. And I needed some space. I needed some time. I don't know if I ever told you the story, the details of, of all of us, but I just needed to take a break. And so I said, I'm going on PTO for a week. I need to figure this out. And the next day I went to log in just to check stuff. And I had been locked out of all systems. And they had put me on what they call disability leave for mental health. And I said, hmm, this is really interesting. I didn't know you could put people on leave, number one. And number two, do you want a lawsuit? Because what is this? And they did indeed get a lawsuit because they never let me back into the company after that. Oh, wow. Literally, it's called, um, and a lot of people don't, I didn't know this, but a lot of people experience this. But there is a way to basically effectively fire people without firing them. Constructive dismissal. Here's the cheat code to making a career pivot or to getting promoted. First, you need the skills to do the job or the ability to learn how to. Second, you have to be able to market and sell yourself as the best candidate for the job. I created the Career Brand Accelerator as a professional development program to help you become a master at marketing and selling your skills so that you will always have the tools you need to make a career change. Because let's be honest, it's easy to get a new degree or certification, 
or even to revamp your resume. But nothing quite prepares you for establishing your brand and for finding out what makes you unique so that you can stand out from the other job candidates in today's competitive job market. I have good news for you. You don't have to navigate your career on your own. Visit the careerbrandaccelerator.com to learn more about how to pivot into your next role and how to level up your career without new degrees and certifications and without applying for tons of jobs online. So I'll start with the definition of constructive dismissal as I understand it. It's when a workplace makes it so bad for you that you just decide to quit and they don't have to fire you. So they're not liable for any you know wrongdoing or anything. You quit. You left of your own accord. And how I ended up leaving change.org was constructive dismissal in that I had found out that my new role, my um, salary was way off. I'm talking like 50K off. <laughs> like it was off. <laughs> and it was because I found out the salary of people, other people at my supposed level. And I raised it as an issue. And they basically said, no, we're not going to fix it. And I was like, okay, why is that? Here's this piece of you know reasoning and this piece of reasoning. Here are other white people who have done the same thing. They're the ones who mm-hmm. told me to reach out and they refused to do it. So in that process, I found out a bunch of other things that were wrong with my salary. My title was wrong. Everything was just wrong. And so I was getting really worked up emotionally and personally. And um, I decided to take some time off. And I said, okay, I need to take a break because I don't even know what my job is right now. And y'all are playing games with me. So I put in for some PTO and left, right? I was like, all right, starting next week, I'm off. The very next day, I got an email that said, thank you so much for requesting disability leave. It's been approved. (laughs) And I'm looking at this like, wait, what? How does someone put you on disability leave? And come to find out, I responded and said, I, I, this is a mistake. You, this is to the wrong person. And, they, and the um, HR person responded to me, you've discussed your mental health many times on Slack. Mm. As if to say, they are putting me on leave because I'm acting crazy. Okay. That's not a thing. <laughs> That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> and so I'm talking to my sister-in-law. I immediately, my sister-in-law is a, a corporate attorney. And I said, What are my options here? Because I need to leave this job. But if I quit, I feel like I get nothing. I would have wasted my energy and my time. What do I do? And she said, this is cut and dry, constructive dismissal. They're making Mm. it so inhabitable for you that you have to leave. So then tell them that. Say so. Say, based on this, 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 and the other, I believe you're making it so uninhabitable that I am forced to quit. And that's how the settlement came about. And I robbed them. I took them to the cleaners. I was like, I said, give me the CEO salary for the next 18 months and I won't sue you. And they said, yes. Oh, wow. So you got legal counsel on the side, but you never actually had to like threaten them to that level. They kind of just settled just based on what you offered. Yeah. So basically they knew I had, I had legal counsel in that I was consulting an attorney um, and I was talking to their head of legal, which is, they were, these were my peers too. So I was, his name was, you know, I won't say his name. Let's say his name was Bobby, but I was like, Bobby, what the F is this? Like, what is this? <laughs> Why are you all doing this to me? So 
it was just so clear. And there was there was a union issue going on and they didn't have any true legal counsel. And I knew that. Mm, oh, and I was like, because you were in the room like, being in the room. Exactly. I was in the room. I was like, I'm on the C team. I know you all don't have any legal counsel. Okay. <laughs> so just give me my money and leave me alone. <laughs> they wasted so much money just throwing it away instead of being better. And I think that that, that was a, a sign, you know, of a company just saying, okay, fine, we'll settle. We'll give them a settlement. And that settlement was in the form of severance. So it wasn't like this big legal case. They just agreed on severance. Um, and in exchange for the severance, I wouldn't sue them. Mm-hmm. Nice. Which is how the severance was written out. I didn't say I'll sue you if mm-hmm. I didn't have to because they knew they had really messed up. We have to clap it up because I try to, I, you know, I try to teach my clients about negotiation, but that's next level negotiation. <laughs> I, I mean, they really, honestly, you, I don't think you have anything to lose when you, if you can consult someone in the legal mm-hmm. field or do a quick research, but if you raise it to your company and you say, I feel like this is constructive dismissal based on this evidence, see what they have to say. Because in my case, I was dealing with like, it was a giant company, but they really didn't know what they mm-hmm. were doing, which is why they ended up treating me that way. No smart company is going to send you an email saying, because you've mentioned your mental health one time on Slack, we're making you stay home. That's so illegal. Yeah, without without <laughs> even so asking illegal. you, right? Like we, Yeah, well, that's, that's not a thing. It's, you don't have to be a genius to know that that's not a thing. So, um, or, you know, if they refuse to correct your salary once you realize it's wrong, like, these are all little things where I was like, okay, I'm just going to write this down, make a list, and then present it back to you and say, do you want to go to court over these things? No? Okay, so let's talk. <laughs> you heard it here first. Answer is <laughs> the best in corporate that I've, I mean, you pulled out some things that I've never even thought about doing. <laughs> so you you take the severance. What do you do next? Okay, so in at the same time, I was also kind of breaking up with my boyfriend at the time. I don't remember if I if I talked to you about this, but my I was engaged at the time and I was struggling on both ends. Mm-hmm. I had this relationship I didn't want and this job I didn't want. And I was just kind of like, I need a new life. <laughs> I need to just break up with all of it. So I did that. I broke up with, it, with all of it. I bought a house thanks to the money. Thank you, uh, change.org. I bought a house. I bought the house I was living in with my fiance, threw him out and I bought this house. And I kind of had, this time to think to myself, what do I really want to do? I could hop to another corporate job. I could work for myself again, which I had been consulting for a while as a a brand strategist. I could write my book, which I had been writing and putting this in quotes, writing for years. And I could actually sit down and actually get serious Mm -hmm. about it. And through all that thinking, I kind of, I had this idea that I need to take some time to travel I love traveling. I left the country like six times in the first year of the pandemic and I didn't get COVID and that I, it was a huge risk. I do not recommend people take risks with their health, but I was out. I was, <laughs> was out of here. I went on so many girls trips. I rededicated myself to my community and my friendships. And so I went on several girls trips with different groups of friends. I traveled by myself. I had a lot of like introspection. And I'd come to this conclusion that I don't want to be like a corporate slave Mm. anymore. 
that I really wanted to prioritize fulfillment, doing the least amount of work for the most amount of money, <laughs> which like, why didn't I think of this I know. before? Why aren't they teaching that in college? Okay. Like, seriously, <laughs> like, how do you, I don't think it's exploitation when you, when you do that, because the way I think about it, and again, I don't remember if we talked about this the first time, but like being stuck on this corporate ladder and always fighting for the next level, the next level. I'm a Capricorn. This is just what I do. I want to be the mm-hmm. best. I want to be at the top of my game, right? But you don't benefit from do, going above and beyond for your pay level, only for them to say, great, good job. We're going to promote you. And then at the next level, you have to go above and beyond mm-hmm. at the same pay level to get promoted. So the company is always going to be benefiting from all of your going above and beyond. So why not just make as much money as you need to make and then live the life you want to live? Because even when you go above and beyond, it's still not good enough. You know, it's never good enough. Whether you're just doing your job or you're going above and beyond, they still want more. It doesn't matter. They still want more and they always want more. And then if you get a meets expectations, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. That's somehow bad. It's, It's just very complicated. So I, I worked with my financial advisor because I had to hire one mm-hmm. with all that money, you know, and I worked with my financial advisor and we calculated the amount of money I needed to make per year to live the life I wanted to live. And it was surprisingly less mm-hmm. than I thought I needed. And so I said, okay, this is the range I'm looking for in the next job. I took about eight months off of no working. I had no job. I had nowhere to be at any given time. Love that. It was amazing. It was such a privilege. Yeah. And then when I started applying, I was looking for jobs that had lots of power, lots of pay, very little responsibility. Hmm, we need to I'm write that down. Lots of power, yeah. <laughs> lots of pay, and very little responsibility. Very little responsibility. And so you're like, okay, what roles are those? I've always wanted to be a chief marketing officer. My entire career has been fighting towards this. Um, and I was looking for like director level roles, um, senior director, associate director level or director and up. And then somebody suggested I should be a chief of staff to a chief marketing mm. officer, that that would help me get back into the executive teams like I was. Um, but it's not exactly like I have a team or anything. I'm just the one pulling mm-hmm. the strings behind the scenes. I don't want anyone reporting to me. That's responsibility. And visibility, right? right? Too much visibility. So I applied for this job at a tech company um, that was, you know, relatively unknown, but because it's a big merger um, for a chief of staff to the CMO. And they were paying right Mm. in my range. I don't have a team. And I just do what's necessary strategy-wise. I'm coordinating a bunch. We just had a summit this week, like a two-day conference. And you know what I did throughout that two-day conference? I did tarot readings. <laughs> I um, made a video to a video collage. Like I'm, the, I'm bringing the culture. Okay. I'm the one who's like, "Hey, did you complete that report? We need great because Lucy, our CMO, our CMO, Lucy needs it. Thank you." And then I'm just kind of shimmying <laughs> around. <laughs> shimmying around i love that that's the the goal we should all have at work nobody needs me at any specific time nobody really cares where i am at any specific time you know it's the perfect job and yet i'm getting exposure visibility and access into this executive world without having to be 
the person that people report to. I don't think I would have ever entertained mm-hmm. this type of role if I didn't have all of that time to think about it. If I wasn't so desperate, um, like I usually would be for the next thing. So you talked about um, having eight months off and you talked about wanting to write a book, but I know you went on basically a tour of doing storytelling. Tell us about that. Yeah, I do storytelling. And so I actually had a show. What day is it? (laughs) I had a show on Wednesday night. That was super fun. I do storytelling, which is not stand up. It's different from stand-up, whereas stand-up is standing and telling a bunch of jokes um, with the goal to make people laugh. Storytelling is just that. There's a theme of the night and Mm. you tell a story. And it's often pretty rehearsed. But if you practice practice enough, the story you tell doesn't sound rehearsed, right? It sounds like flowing and natural. It shouldn't sound robotic. But I've been doing that for a few years and I use this time to just say yes to every gig. I don't have to be at work in the morning. I'll, yeah, I'll take a Tuesday night, you know, <laughs> gig. Um, so I was in a show at the Kennedy Center um, here in Washington, D.C. for uh, Women's History Month last year. That show I had the other night was, that was kind of a funny, fun one. But a lot of my life experiences are unbelievable. <laughs> so I tell stories about that about like the things that I've experienced. And I think storytelling ties back to your expertise in marketing because, you know, that's essentially what we're doing. So you start storytelling, you know, just kind of as a side hobby and start taking it for gigs and then you blow up on TikTok. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Since we last talked, actually, my goal this year is 20,000 followers and I'm at 18,500 Okay. So yeah, I think the last time we talked, I might've been at like Uh 13,000. So it just keeps getting bigger. I blew up on TikTok. Several things that I, things that I talk about are like relationship based life lessons, Mm -hmm. things that I've learned because in my lifetime, I am 35 and in my lifetime, I have been married, divorced, engaged, called it off, lived all over the country, the world. Like I have just... I was talking to a neighbor about a house up the street that she liked. And I was like, oh, yeah, I used to own that house. And she was like, how old are you? <laughs> what do you mean you used to own that house? Nine lives. She's already had you know? nine lives. Yeah. I've just lived a number of lives. And so um, part of the the book pro- writing process was to start to test those stories and figure out my oh, audience. Okay. And the, my audience is women. It's women of all races, creeds, colors, backgrounds, but a lot of Black women do follow me because I am a Black woman. We support each other. But my stories, I've realized, have a universal kind of appeal, which is I am a woman who takes risks. Mm. And I don't think we hear enough stories about women who take risks where the stories don't end with them being the boss or being married or having the child, you know? My story, I'm a single woman who is not the boss and doesn't want to be anymore. I live alone with my dogs. Like I'm a cat lady, essentially. <laughs> and that's the end of the story, right? <laughs> and for there are a lot of women out there who are like who identify with that. Awesome. And we can't wait to continue to follow you on TikTok and that whole thing. I, I'm waiting for you to hit 100K. So oh, that would be in the next year or so, we're going to hit 100K. But you said something very interesting that your stories are very appealing to women. So what are you reading or what are you listening to? What kind of resources, 
you know, have poured into you that you want to share with, you know, maybe there's another woman listening that you're like, oh, guy, you guys got to read this. A hundred percent. And I'm going to look up because the books are right here near me at all times. The first book is Set Boundaries, Find Peace. Did Have you read it? Absolutely. It, it was the best book I read all of last year. It is phenomenal. And it's like, you know it in your head that this is what you should be doing. But yeah, but like, why aren't I setting good boundaries? Mm-hmm. Why? It's so good. I'm so obsessed that like, if I'm talking to a friend, I literally just bought this book for a close family member the other day. Because I'm like, if I'm talking to somebody and they are telling me a story that sounds like you need better boundaries, I'm going right over to Amazon. Exactly. And you're going to get a package <laughs> with this book. <laughs> right? I, se- I sent it to my mom and my sister because both of them needed some boundary setting and I wanted to help them the way that the book helped me. Mm-hmm. And I think it was my therapist who recommended the book. And so I gave it to, and then they gave it to everybody. And it's just such a good gift. Honestly, I think woman to woman, especially um, is that like we are socialized to be a little bit more forgiving, maybe timid, maybe just like keeping the peace and keeping the peace doesn't always keep your peace. Mm. You know what I mean? And you need to prioritize your own peace. So setting boundaries, find peace. The title speaks for itself. So that's book number one. Mm -hmm. The second book is The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. This book, now the title is a little bit confusing, I think, because if you're a heterosexual person, you might not pick up this book. And you might be like, okay, like, what does this have to do with me? Like, is it trying to say that I should be gay? Like, what is this Mm. book? Somebody recommended it to me. I read it and my mind was blown and I was so upset and angry at the world, like with female rage. I sent it to my mom that she was like, oh my God, this book is good. (laughs) My sister, we have a little book club, I guess. This is a book that again, goes back to how women and female identifying people who are in heterosexual relationships are conditioned by so many things that we already know we're conditioned but it's, it's so hard to break free. Yeah. And kind of like shrugging it off, shaking it off. You're going to be a leper. You're going to be counterculture. And it's about the history of romance advice mm. geared towards straight women. So you think about like, act like a lady, think like a man. Yeah. BS. That book. <laughs> that book. <laughs> I was going to curse and I got myself, but that book is just a repackaged trope of the previous generation's book, which is like the feminine, you know, um, you know, how to be more, le- how to please your husband, right. like, which is just a repackage of the previous generation. It's the same thing. It's how to act a certain way so that you'll be acceptable by men, but also secretly, you know, uh, what is it like a, like a freak in the freak in the sheets or whatever type of person. And it's, no. it's none of it is geared towards the ultimate happiness of woman. Or, yeah. or women. None, of, none of that cares about. No, it's not like how to be a happy person or how to, you know, center yourself. It's literally how to act in a certain way so that men will love you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's not the book I was hoping to pick up. I was trying to figure out how I can find happiness. And this book, the tragedy of heterosexuality is uh, written by a sociologist who, so it's very data-based, um, very like history-based. It's fascinating. And um, it kind of tied me back into as part of the research for my book. And the central theme of my book is decoupling from coupledom. 
is that we exist as human beings, not single or coupled. Mm-hmm. And it and getting married, finding a partner, getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend, these are not life goals. They're just like in in and of themselves, they're nothing. Getting someone else to validate your existence mm-hmm. is something you should talk to a therapist about. Um, <laughs> but that so that's like all of these books kind of keep coming back to the central theme. The central point is put yourself first, validate yourself first, and make yourself so happy and full of joy that anyone who comes along has to be like top tier because they're adding to your already right. awesome life. And if they can't do that, they're detracting from it. And I don't have time for that. So, man, I got to pick up a copy of that. I'm going to add it to my Audible right now. I'm going to send it to you. Okay, because I got to pick up a copy of that. Because, yeah, there are a lot of constructs that we operate Mm -hmm. in that are not Mm -hmm. um, so pleasurable sometimes. (laughs) And it's, it's, uh, it's helpful. It's like it's the goal of that book of the tragedy of heterosexuality. I don't think is is the same as mine, which is like be single if you want to, like, you know, die happy is what I'm saying. But that book, I think, is to help open minds to different ways of thinking so that you are not trapped in a structure yeah. so that you do so willingly with all of the knowledge. I really like it for that, that it's for everybody. So I'll send you a copy. Okay, I can't wait. And I can't wait to, I'll be keeping up with you about your book as well. So how can the audience support you? So you can support me by following me on TikTok, honestly. Um, you can get the link at my full name, ansaedam.com slash everything. And that's where you'll find my latest shows, any upcoming shows, any way to contact me. You can see videos of previous shows and you can also see the link to my TikTok there. But I'm at TikTok at Ansa with like five underscores. But it's easier to remember, ansaedam.com slash everything. Awesome. I know they're going to be running to follow you on TikTok because this interview was everything and so amazing. You shared so much. Thank you so much for being a guest. I enjoyed every second of it. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you love this episode as much as I did, be sure to hit the subscribe button, leave a five-star review, or share this podcast with those in your network that are striving to make smart career and money moves. Till next week. Bye.